Thanks, Don. I think Don has a future career in Bible reading for like a Bible app that you listen to. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Thanks, Don. Um, so good morning. Welcome. So good to be with you. My name is Abby, and I am the pastor of college and career here at Bethany Green Lake. Uh, welcome to those of you who are across the street in the chapel and listening online. It's good to have you with us as well. We are continuing today in a series called Seasons, A Time for Everything, in which we're looking at the ways in which God talks about time, the ways in which God exists in time, and ultimately what it means for us to live with God from one season to the next. If you were here two, two weeks ago when Richard kicked off the series, you'll remember he made three observations about our current Western culture. He commented that anxiety, lack of ability to be present, and fear are prolific sort of all around us. Like our culture, our world, Seattle, is saturated by these things. And we also experience them in our own story. And there's this convincing sort of uh, social science perspective um, that attributes this reality, uh, the reality of the time we live in, um, by naming that, you know, we're more connected than we've ever been. We live in a global world. Uh, we have a longer life expectancy than anybody who has lived before us. And we have more access to information than any other time in history. So there's this illusion of power and control that we have, and yet, at the end of the day, we simply don't know what tomorrow will hold. And so it's, it's in this tension that this fear and anxiety, this lack of ability to be present, surfaces in real ways in our lives. A great illustration of this in my own world, some of you will have uh, heard of the startup called 23andMe. Anybody? Hands? I see you nodding your heads. Um, basically what it is, it's this company, they take, you swab your cheek, they take a little bit of DNA, you send it to them by mail, they analyze the swab, and they're able to tell you the genetic makeup of your ancestry, as well as how your unique DNA might predispose you to certain health risks. So my husband Sam loves this sort of thing. A while back, before he and I ever met, he uh, did this, swabbed his cheek, sent it in, got the report. A couple days ago, he stumbled upon it. And he's like, hey, you gotta read this with me. So we're, we're looking over the list, and it included some practical things like, you carry the red hair gene. Great. Uh, but then there were some strange things like, you are more likely than the average person to have a unibrow. And you are less likely than the average person to learn from your mistakes. I'm not kidding, it was on there on the list. I joked to Sam, this would have been a good thing to know before we got married. <laughs> but I'm just kidding, I love him so much. Uh, the thing on the list that disturbed me the most was this line that read, you have a 40% chance of developing deep vein thrombosis in your lifetime. Now some of you will know deep vein thrombosis is not something you want to develop. Uh, it's essentially a blood clot. It happens quickly, kind of without warning. Um, the consequences are not good. And so as Sam was reading this to me, I'm like, I don't want to know this. Why are you reading this? Stop reading this. There's nothing I can do. Like every time you cough now, I think you're going to drop dead. But the story illustrates that even in this world where just a swab of a cheek can tell us so much about a person, we still know so little. We still control so little. We still can't see what next season will br bring. Will we be single or married? Will we be healthy or sick? Will we have money or will the market crash? Will the Mariners keep the magic alive this year or will they break our hearts again? We simply don't know. 
And part of what is so compelling about our text for today is that by looking at the life of Jesus, we learn there are these certain components. There are these certain sort of predictable realities that will always be present with us. We can always depend on, we always lean into. They'll always be part of our story as we move from one season to the next. And it's those realities, the realities of promise, calling, and temptation that we're going to look at together this morning. So as we do that, would you please pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for these words that we've heard read this morning. We thank you that um, you are a God who came to be with us. You entered time. You came in a season. You were not content to stay far away. And in doing so, Lord, you showed us something about how it is we can live from moment to moment. So God, in these moments we have together, enlighten us, change us, shape us, challenge us that we may be more like you in how we live and how we interact with the world. We pray these in your name, amen. So we'll start this morning by looking at this notion of promise implicit in our text from Luke 2. And as we do that, I wanna hone in on a word that Jesus uses in this passage. It's a word pertaining to time, and that word is today, today. Jesus is worshiping in this synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown, and after reading the scripture for that day, he sits down and makes this announcement. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The scripture he's just read is actually from Isaiah chapter 61, and it speaks about the blind receiving sight, about the imprisoned being set free, about the oppressed being unchained and then made to flourish. And Jesus tells hearers in the room, today this is fulfilled. Like, today the world has access to this reality. You, you Jews who are living under Roman oppression and not happy about it, you can know this fulfillment. Now, as we read further in the book of Luke, what we find is that Jesus actually uses the word today over and over again as he interacts with others, not just the Jews. For instance, in Luke 19, when Jesus calls Zacchaeus the tax collector, Zacchaeus is literally up in a tree, right? He's up in a tree because uh, he was an oppressor. He has no friends. He's lonely. He's afraid. And so he climbs this tree and he finds in that moment, uh, Jesus finds him in that moment and says, come down from that tree, Zacchaeus. Today, I must dine in your home. And then just a few verses later in the story, Jesus again employs that word saying to Zacchaeus, today salvation or deliverance has come to your home. Fast forward now to Luke chapter 23 where Jesus hangs on a cross and he turns to the crook who's on the cross next to him and he makes this promise, today you will be with me in paradise. Now you'll notice as we look at these different stories in Luke is that those on the receiving end of Jesus' words are living in vastly different seasons of life, right? You have the Jews, uh, the religious, they're sitting with Jesus in the synagogue. You have the utter enemy of the Jews, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, right? Plagued by guilt, not quite ready to relinquish this lifestyle of luxury. You have a man hanging on a cross moments away from his own death, likely experiencing fear, likely considering past regrets, and you'll notice that in each of these stories, as different as the seasons are, Jesus enters and he offers this promise, not despite their circumstances, but rather right in the midst of them, today fulfillment, today salvation, today you will be with me. 
And so together, these passages affirm this promise that whatever season you find yourself in, in this moment, today, is precisely the moment, the time that Jesus longs to offer you fulfillment through his presence. Now, this might seem straightforward enough to all of us, but notice how in Luke chapter 4, those with him in the synagogue respond, instead of embracing Jesus who has chosen to be with them, they think to themselves, why isn't he doing for us what he did in Capernaum? Capernaum, where he did miracles. Capernaum, where you put on a show. Capernaum, where you impress the crowds. We want you, Jesus, but we only want you insofar as you can do some things for us that we would like done in this season. I've mentioned before that my husband Sam and I have a younger son. He's one and a half. He doesn't have red hair, for the record, which is kind of a bummer. Um, But what he does have since about the time he turned one is this really strong preference for his father. Now, initially, I found this somewhat cute. Every time he'd reach for Sam, I'd remind him, you have a really good dad. It's so sweet. You love him. That was six months ago. Now, every time he reaches for his father, I remind him who it was that brought him into this world. (laughs) But the other day, we were all standing around in the kitchen, um, and Mark was in Sam's arms, and he did something uncommon. He started to cry. That's not the uncommon part. He started to cry and reach for me. Right? I was like, oh man, this is awesome. I was playing it really cool inside, uh, on the outside, but inside I was overjoyed. However, I took him into my arms. I quickly realized he was not reaching for me because he wanted me. He was re- reaching for me because where I was standing in the kitchen was closer to the countertop on which his favorite toy was sitting. And so he thought that by coming into my arms, he rightfully thought that by coming into my arms, he would be able to get his hands on his, that toy. Now, I share this particular story because I think often as we navigate a given season, this can be our approach to faith, whether it be a season of transition, a season of loneliness, a season of financial stress, school pressure, a difficult relationship, unknowns regarding our health, right? I I reach out to Jesus Wanting from him what I perceive will solve on a very practical level a particular need of that season. I reach for him to get the toy, so to speak. A promotion to solve my insecurity. A grade to solve my stress. A partner to solve this kind of aching, pervasive loneliness that I have. And don't mishear me, these are not bad things to pursue or want. But they're not fullness. They're not the source of fulfillment. That's not to say that God doesn't care about our circumstances. Don't mishear me. God does. God deeply, deeply does. But if we're not careful, we end up like the Jews in Nazareth saying, do for us what you did in Capernaum, all the while missing a relationship and intimacy with Jesus in our midst. And when we find ourselves in that place, fulfillment will forever be one season away. The word fulfillment in Greek implies to be brought to the very brim so that nothing will be wanting. And part of the beauty of the gospel is that in Christ there's this accessibility we have to the life of Christ that no matter where I am or what I encounter in every season, I live with this ongoing security because Christ's life is now my life. Where there was death, he poured himself in. That's the beauty of the gospel. About Six or so years ago, Sam and I had just started dating and I was going through some health struggles. I had 
these tumors um, that were going to be removed, but before they removed them, they biopsied them. And so there's about a four-day span where I'm waiting for these test results to come back. Some of you have been in that place. You know how excruciating that waiting game can be. And so it was a Sunday afternoon. Sam and I uh, had gone to church. He dropped me off at home, and he was on his way to go meet some friends for a bike ride. Again, we hardly knew each other at this point. And I got home, and I was there alone, and I sat in my apartment, and my mind started to wander, and I was feeling anxious. I was feeling kind of afraid. And so I, did, I texted Sam, and I said, hey, if it's okay, I'd really like you to come back and just be with me. And so a few minutes later, he showed up, and I'll never forget that afternoon. We made lunch. We talked honestly about how I was feeling afraid. We went for a walk. We played endless rounds of the card game Speed. It doesn't matter who won, but if you're wondering, I won. <laughs> and as he left, I felt fuller, right? I felt, I felt braver. I felt closer to him. And circumstances hadn't changed. I was still waiting, but it's one of the days as I look back on our relationship, it's one of the days I treasure more than anything. It's one of the days where I learned the most about the kind of person that Sam is. And in a small way, this experience sort of insufficiently captures how God meets us from one season to the next. Friends, it's not about getting the toy, it's about sitting at the table. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, the psalmist says. Today, in this season, right now. So in addition to this promise of meeting and filling us today, in every season, the text also sheds light on the reality that uh, we have a calling. In every season, we have a calling. We are invited to live in the world in a particular way that reflects God's character. And these two realities of promise and calling are inextricably linked. Our calling, what we do, is always shaped by what we encounter, good, bad, or ugly. What we fill ourselves with will inform how we act in the world. Thus, our ongoing encounter with God's promise of fullness will lead us in every season to participate in calling. And Jesus clarifies this. He announces the reason for which he came, his own calling, right? Good news for the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind. The oppressed will be free. And again, he ends with those important words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that phrase, in your hearing, is significant beyond what it might initially seem when we read the text. Yeah, we can literally translate it, in your ears, and by adding it to the end of this proclamation, Jesus is keeping in line with the prophets who came before him who also used this small little phrase, in your hearing. For instance, in Deuteronomy 6, when Moses announces the law to the people of Israel, at multiple points he uses the phrase, hear, O Israel. Now he's not just trying to get their attention in that moment. He's saying, hear this, and by hearing it, you will do it. You will participate in it. Follow these laws. In them is the fullness of life. The idea then is that hearing is not merely a passive action whereby the people in the synagogue just witness information and go on. Jesus isn't just proclaiming something about his own calling. As hearers, they're actually invited to participate in that calling. The New Testament theologian Joel Green put it this way. He says, Jesus' final words in your hearing do more than signify the locale of his preaching as if to say, in your presence. By building on the tradition of hearing in Revelation 
and the symbol of the listening ear is a sign of openness to the divine message, this phrase invites, even demands response. The episode moves from address to reaction. In other words, Jesus announces his own calling will be this global, even universal reordering of values and systems and power structures whereby freedom and healing and sight for the blind will be the primary markers of this new thing that he's doing. And he is saying to his listeners, in your hearing, you are part of this calling. If you follow me, if you're filled by me, you will be active, willful, fruit-bearing agents of this kingdom in every season. Now, it's worth naming that this particular notion of calling in all seasons and contexts is sort of out of alignment with how we tend to think about that word certainly in the evangelical church. We tend to think about calling as a particular window within our lifespan, right? If I'm, a, if I'm a student or in the early stages of my career, I think of calling in terms of the future, something I'm trying to figure out. If I'm retired, I often think of calling as a season that has passed, right? That is something former, it's connected to vocation. But Jesus in this moment confronts that assumption and essentially says all who hear this are called to participate in it. Young or old, student or retired, stay-at-home parent or single tech worker in South Lake Union, in your hearing, you have a calling. And one of the helpful things about this story is that Jesus doesn't just communicate with words, but he offers us this example in himself of what it means to do this, what it means to live out a calling in a particular season. Notice, Jesus had a body. Jesus was born in a particular time and place. He was born into a particular religious tradition with parents. He had a particular income, a particular family history and personality that was unique to him. He walked certain streets. He spoke a certain language. He lived under a certain government. And all of this means if we take Jesus' incarnation seriously, Jesus becoming human, if we take that seriously, then we also take the conditions where we are placed today in this season seriously. Wherever you are right now, not next year, this is the place of your calling. Notice Jesus lives out his calling in this particular context, and he does so both by embracing and challenging the norms that come with it, right? He's in a Jewish synagogue. He's affirming the weekly practice of worship. He's participating in it. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, affirming the beauty and the shaping truth of scripture. God created the world. He loves it. He participates in it. And then we come to this point in the story where there is a tension that is introduced, where Jesus, who has affirmed the norms of the context he's in, now changes his tune and confronts a flaw in their thinking. In front of all the people gathered in the synagogue, Jesus points out what happened in the days of the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah Elijah was sent to help a widow, but she wasn't a Jewish widow. Elisha healed one solitary leper, and the leper was the commander not of Israel's army, but of the enemy army. So these stories Jesus is telling, they are utterly offensive to his audience. The Jews want a Messiah who will be on their team, 
right? They want a savior who will promote their cause. But Jesus says, no, that's actually not the way of my kingdom. There's this reordering, this reorienting, whereby to follow me, you'll have to see the world and the people and your calling in different terms. Now, here's why that's important. In the context Jesus is placed, he both affirms and challenges. He works within the system and he simultaneously subverts the system. Like Jesus, we have a calling in every season. It's a calling informed by both an encounter, an intimacy with Christ, being filled by Christ, that promise, and the uniqueness of our context today, this season. And like Jesus, we step into that context and where there is truth and beauty, we affirm, we contribute. And where there is injustice and suffering, we challenge and we participate in the reorientation that God is bringing about. There's an author some of you may have heard of uh, by the name of David Brooks. And he wrote a really interesting article a few years back called At the Edge of the Inside. The main point of his article is that within any organization, there are those on the inside who are sort of blinded by the flaws of the group because they're, they're so entrenched. And then those are, there are those on the outside who are antagonistic towards the organization. He calls them missile throwers, right? They hate everything that the organization is about. But there's another important group, he says, which is those who are on the edge of the inside. These are the people who are for the good of the organization, but they're not caught up in groupthink. They love the organization, but they can see its flaws. And Brooks identifies the uniqueness of this last group. He writes, when you live on the edge of any group, you are free from its central seductions, but also free to hear its core message in very new and creative ways. Now, I love this article because in certain ways, it is precisely the tension and the calling as followers of Christ living in this day, in the time that we do, this is what we are supposed to do, right? God so loved the world, and yet God is making all things new. This city of ours is brimming with beauty and glory. Man, if you got outside this week, you know what I am talking about. Those mountains, there is no place like it in the world. The Mariners are 2-0. They're leading the AL West. Come on. Thanks for that. And then this city of ours, it's sick. It's broken. Opioids are wreaking havoc on people who bear God's image and yet wake up every day feeling hopeless. People who can't afford to live in their neighborhoods anymore because they've been priced out having to uproot, go somewhere else. Everywhere we go, we see this tension of brokenness and goodness, beauty and tragedy, glory and heartbreak. It's in your world today. And in the midst of this tension, our calling is not to throw our hands up and to shun the world, to say it's all evil, I'll just go on living a holy life until I die and go to heaven. That's Gnosticism, it's not our calling. Nor is our calling to say, it's all meaningless, therefore I'll just be all in. I'll just participate to each their own. That's narcissism and it is also not our calling. Instead, as people who have received this promise of fullness, we step into the world today, loving it the way Jesus did, 
seeing the places it's broken the way Jesus did. And then in our respective and unique and particular context, we're able to apply the core message of God's fullness for all people in new and creative ways, the way that Jesus did. In a way you could say our calling is to live on the edge of the inside. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this notion so well has to do um, with baseball, so it's fitting for this week. Some of you, if you're fanatics, might know the name Don Newcomb. Uh, Don played for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the late 1940s. He's remembered as one of the game's greatest pitchers. He holds multiple records. Um, But Don was also one of the first African-American men to enter into the major leagues following Jackie Robinson. So Jackie Robinson signed with the Dodgers in 1947. Um, And Don shortly after that, and he and Jackie played for the Dodgers in the same era. So they were teammates, they were friends. A couple years back, I was working on a project and just by sheer luck, I got to spend an hour on the phone with Don Newcomb, who at this point was 90 years old. He just passed away in February at 92. Um, but we, we got to chatting on the phone, talked about his experience in the major leagues. He loves baseball, let me tell you what. Um, but at one point I said, you know, what, what was one of the hardest things you remember about that era? And without skipping a beat, he said, oh, the hardest thing was going to St. Louis. And I said, interesting. And uh, he said, have you ever been to St. Louis in August? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, save yourself the trouble. Um, And then he went on to describe the horrific nature of the crazy heat and the 100% humidity that plagues St. Louis during those summer months. And he explained that they would pull into town, they would drop the white players off at the nicest hotel, the one with the air conditioning and the pool, and then they would drive across town and drop him and Jackie and Roy Campanella off at a hotel for people of color, which had no pool and no air conditioning. And he said, we were so hot and miserable we wouldn't sleep, and then we'd have to get up the next day and we'd have to play a game. We'd have to play it better than anyone to prove that we could be there. He told uh, me this one time, they were headed to St. Louis, they were on the bus, and he complained to Jackie about the heat and no air conditioning situation. They were talking about it on the bus. He said, Jackie turned to me and said, hey, keep pitching the way you're pitching, and air-conditioned hotels won't be the only thing that we get. I love talking with Don. He graciously let me peek into a world that just given my privilege and who I am, I'll never fully understand. But I love what we can learn from their experience about calling. Man, these guys loved baseball. It's what they did. They loved it more than anything. They showed up in that context and they played the game well but they also saw the horrific injustices of our culture and our world at that time. They knew what they were doing was about far more than just playing baseball. They challenged deeply ingrained beliefs that run against the way of Jesus and they did it with creativity. They did it with courage. They did it with a wicked fastball. Friends, calling is not a thing of the past or something you look forward to once you have a second degree. It's for now, it's for this season. As long as you have a context, you have a calling. And as long as you are living, you have a context. So we might start this morning by asking that question, what is my context? And I encourage you, don't just ask that question and let it hang there. Spend some time this week. Sit down. Write it out. Where do you work? Where do you live? What kind of income do you have? Who do you know? 
Who's in your neighborhood? What are the schools? Who are the poor in your neighborhood? What are the greatest needs there? Where do I have time in my schedule? If you live with family or roommates, I'd encourage you guys, sit down, do this together. And then follow that question up with this one. How in this season am I called to be a person who embodies the fullness of Christ in new and creative ways, in a way that only I can do because of where I am? I have a friend who recently uh, researched which grocery stores in her neighborhood have the highest commitment to waste reduction and feeding community, uh, the community with food that otherwise would be thrown out. She's committed to shopping at that store that's reducing waste and by doing so feeding people. There's a group of post-college folks in our community who are in a season where they have some time and job flexibility. That's their context. And given this season, they decided to serve with one of our Bethany Good Neighbor teams, coming alongside a refugee family, being available to them, befriending them, learning from them, helping them adjust to this new home and space in Seattle. My grandma is 93 years old. She's going to be 94 in April. And Uh, A couple years ago, she moved to an assisted living facility. She didn't want to go. She'll be the first to tell you. But when she got there, she noticed there were a whole lot of social outings for people that were um, off campus, right? They were difficult for some of the less mobile older folks to access. And these were the people who were particularly lonely. And so seeing that context, she went ahead and she started a puzzle club where every day after breakfast, they all gather together and they do puzzles together. I've gone, and I have to tell you, half of them literally cannot see the puzzle pieces. (laughs) But here's the thing, friends, that's not what it's about. It's about people finding community. It's about the lonely being less lonely. It's about the fullness of God being experienced and extended in a particular time and place to people in need. Today, in this season, what is your context? Where are you called? And then the final point is this, as we go about living into this calling, we will continually and even daily encounter temptation. We see this in the story from Luke 4, when the people gathered in the synagogue, they want Jesus to perform amongst them miracles like he performed in Capernaum. Now, if we put ourselves in Jesus's position, we remember this is his hometown. These are the people he grew up with, right? These are the the people who taught him the scriptures, the friends that he played with in his childhood. All that's to say, if ever there was a time that Jesus was tempted to put on a magic show to perform miracles, it would have been this moment, right? He's standing there before Tommy, who bullied him in second grade. I'm sure it would have been nice to say, hey, Tommy, watch this, boom, butterfly, turn it into a fork or something. (laughs) What can you do? Just to be clear, that's not actually in the Bible, but you get the idea. (laughs) This is Jesus' place. These are the people he knows, the people he cares about. And given his context, in this moment, there's likely a very human temptation to do something grand in their presence, but he doesn't. And the people turn hostile. They run him out of town. Now, I have to tell you, as I read this part, part of me wonders, like, why? Why couldn't Jesus have performed a miracle in this moment the same way he did in Cana and everywhere else that he would go? And the simple answer is, we don't exactly know, but what we do know is that over time and throughout scripture, whenever a person has a calling, that calling is accompanied by temptation, right? The book of Hebrews tells us that Moses faced a temptation to grow up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter 
as a son of privilege and prestige, instead of identifying with the people of Israel, comfort instead of being amongst the poor. And oftentimes as we go about our calling through a particular season, we will experience temptation in the place of our unique vulnerability. That's what makes it tempting. What what tempted Moses may not tempt you or I, but we all have things. At the beginning of Luke chapter four, Jesus himself is led by the spirit into the wilderness. This is right before the scene we just read today. Luke writes, Jesus had nothing to eat for 40 days. He had nothing to eat and he was hungry. I bet. And it's no surprise that the first temptation Jesus encounters is to turn stones into bread. Right? In that moment, that's Jesus' vulnerability. It's his hunger. What is it for you in this season? What's your calling, but what's your temptation? I was recently talking to a friend of mine who works in higher academia, and he mentioned that the pressure to publish, like his written works and ideas, is so strong that he'll often have to check himself to make sure he's living into his calling and not just writing to appease his peers or his ego. Maybe your calling in this season is to care for an aging parent, and the temptation then is to believe that that calling is less important than that of your peers who seem to be kind of at the peak of their careers. There's a temptation to ascribe value there. Maybe your calling this season is to be a voice of ethical direction in a company where ethics are quickly dismissed to meet the bottom line. The temptation might be to stay silent for the sake of your own reputation. Maybe your calling in this season is to show up for your kids, but the temptation is to overwork because for you, work has always been a source of identity and value. It's predictable, and 13-year-old kids aren't predictable. So you work. Comfort, ego, fear, lust, greed, reputation, depending on the season you're in, all of these might be the source of temptation. But friends, here's the good news, and here's why that outline in your bulletin this morning is not a list, but actually a circle. The good news is our, our particular temptations, if we choose to let them, instead of leading us towards disillusionment and sin that separates us from God, like Jesus in the wilderness, those places actually become something in this season that bring us back to that original promise of fullness. As I experience temptation, I name that vulnerability, be it ego, be it lust, be it fear, be it a need that I have to please other people. I name that temptation and I receive fulfillment when today, now, in this season. And as we go about our calling in each consecutive season, the beautiful thing is that our temptations and weaknesses over time become for us not a point of weakness, but of strength. Not a place where we miss God, but where we experience more of God. And when we think of it like this, every season of working around that circle actually becomes grounds for discipleship, actually becomes the place where we start to look more and more like Jesus. Transformation happens from one season to the next, be they good seasons or hard seasons. As I was preparing my message for this week, I was reminded of that conversation with Dom Newcomb, so I pulled up the notes that I'd taken a couple years back. Um, and at the bottom of the page, there was a quote from Don uh, I'd recorded, a quote about how he kept going all the while being on the receiving end of so much hate because of his skin color. We talked about that. And um, 
He made this profound comment. He said, some of the fans liked us, but you couldn't rely on the people to carry you. For the most part, they kept trying to fill us up with hate, and we kept having to fill ourselves up with something else, or we wouldn't have made it. And in short, this is how we live in every season. We fill ourselves up with something else, with the person of Jesus. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will get us there. We fill ourselves up with the source that will not run out, the living water, the bread of life, a fullness that will meet us today, that will carry us where we are called and that will continue to fill us when we fail or we're tempted in that direction. And so as we end in worship, I'm gonna encourage us uh, today in this moment to just silently consider with God, what is the season that you're in? Where do you need fullness? Process that. Ask, ask God for it. If you're a person who likes to write, maybe jot it down in your bulletin. And then as we close in worship, I'll invite you to silently just ask Jesus in a moment to meet you right now in this season, to fill you up in a way that only Christ promises to do and only Christ can do. Friends, this season has the potential to be your best one yet because the promise is that the fullness of God will meet you in it, and it doesn't get any better than that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Loving Father, we acknowledge this morning that we are people who often feel weak and distracted and in need. God, that um, I long to be like Zacchaeus who sees you in front of me and yet so often I'm like the folks in the synagogue looking for something else, looking for something better. Father, I pray that this moment in time would not be one of those moments. Help us to see you, help us to seek you. And God, I pray that in doing so, you would make good on your promise that we would be filled in the same way that your son was filled, to the very brim, nothing wanting. Regardless of the circumstances that we sit in today, God, find us in that. May you, we know you more deeply because of the very things we are encountering today. God, we're grateful that that's what the incarnation was about. That's why you came. That's why you come. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.